welcome to This Desire for Peace. This podcast contains true stories involving extreme violence. Listener discretion is advised. The September skies were dark and ominous, dripping a cold rain on the large mounted column of cavalry and infantry. The soldiers' moods were as dark as the clouds. The cup of indignation was more than full tonight, wrote a reporter who accompanied the expedition. The troops had set out from Camp Warner in southern Oregon nearly a month earlier, and their time had proven to be a colossal waste of time. They'd given up any hopes of finding Native Americans, and now they gloomily moved through the sagebrush on their way to resupply at Fort Crook in California. It was about this time when they crossed a large trail. Despite their mood, their commander made the decision to follow it. Before long, the scouts hired from the Warm Springs Reservation, who accompanied the expedition, reported a camp of Paiutes in the area. As the force streamed into the valley, the Paiutes and those with them heard the soldiers and ran for cover on the nearby ridge. But that rocky ridge, located just south of the Oregon state line near present-day likely California, was far more formidable than what the soldiers anticipated. The natives had situated themselves in a fortress of stone, one that, at the time, offered them the best chance of survival against this onslaught of white invaders. The fortifications were incorporated into the natural features of the bluff, with caves honeycombing through the basalt crest. The caves offered ideal firing ports and cover for the defenders, while any attacking host had to cross the open plain below the rim and climb a sharp incline of several hundred feet to even reach the initial defenses of the natives. Undaunted, the commander ordered his men forward. The soldiers began the ascent up the ridge. A group of natives hiding in some of the lower rocks and boulders stood and fired a volley at the soldiers. After firing the volley, the Indians retreated up the slope with the troops in pursuit. Rushing from boulder to boulder, scrambling over sagebrush and stone, the tired soldiers slowed as they attempted to scale the heights. Still, they did not know the number of defenders or the exact location of where the natives were. Approaching a small crest, the defenders fired another volley from the rocks above. One soldier was killed outright, another fell mortally wounded, and two more were hit. The soldiers responded with their own volleys, and the natives returned fire. Men struggled for cover and better shooting positions. Night fell, and the soldiers withdrew. While they could not account for killing or wounding any of the natives, by the end of the day, the troops lost about ten men, six of whom were dead. The bodies of the dead were lodged in deep crags between the boulders and couldn't be retrieved until after dark for fear of losing more to the accurate fire of the natives. Before dawn the next morning, the soldiers resumed the attack. Charging up the slope on the bluff from the north and south, they began the steep ascent under fire, screaming as they navigated the treacherous ground. The desperate defenders, who fought for the survival of themselves and their families, fired accurately and continuously, wounding and killing more of the soldiers. The troops had to help each other up, as some boulders were too large to scale without aid. Soon. The men were on the same level with the main fortifications, but they were separated from the defenders by a high wall. Reaching that wall, 
a defender shot a soldier in the head at point-blank range. Within seconds, another fell in the same manner when he attempted to climb, spattering blood and brain on the black rocks. The soldiers clawed at the wall of rocks, pushing, pulling, and hitting it. A few of the troops thrust their carbines through the holes and fired. Breaking through, the troops rushed into the works. Our men swarmed into the fort, using revolvers and clubbed carbines, recalled an officer. Any defenders who did not run were beaten down and slaughtered. Some attempted to climb out of the fort and escape, but were shot. Those who did escape took shelter in the caves that ran through the ridge. Any soldier who exposed himself near a cave entrance was likely to be shot. The uncomfortable stalemate continued through the night. The soldiers were entirely unable to force the natives out, but the Indians were unable to do anything about the soldiers. When dawn broke, however, the natives were gone. Somehow, they had escaped. The Army expedition lost about a third of its fighting force, with eight dead and ten wounded, while the natives lost about fifteen killed. The Battle of Infernal Caverns was over. This violent fight was just one of a four-year conflict now known among whites as the Snake War. The Snake War took place across Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, and California from about 1864 to 1868. It's believed to be the deadliest Indian War of the American West. Despite that fact, the war remains almost entirely unknown. While there are many books about other Indian Wars, to this day there remains only one credible treatment of the conflict. This study is just one attempt to fill that gap in historical knowledge. Hello, I'm Matthew Volkel, and you are listening to This Desire for Peace. This podcast will examine the Snake War as it occurred in Oregon. I'll interview members of the Northern Paiute Tribe, as well as local historians who have a knowledge of events in and around the conflict. I will also explore the roots and aftermath of the war, as well as the viewpoints of four different entities that took part in the conflict, namely the Settlers of Oregon, the United States Army, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the Native Americans themselves, a perspective that has been perpetually neglected. These four entities were involved in a prolonged tug-of-war over Eastern Oregon. Each of the four parties contended for peace, though the characteristics of and path to that peace differed greatly. The white settlers envisioned peace as a world free of the Indians. Newspaper editors in the region, for example, explicitly and unabashedly called for extermination, the eradication of the entire northern Paiute nation. In today's language, white settlers eagerly advocated genocide. For the northern Paiutes, peace was the ability to live without outside intrusion or interference. Indian agents from the Bureau of Indian Affairs offered a different brand of peace, one that meant the removal of all tribes to reservations with the, at least theoretical, intent to eventually assimilate and integrate the Indians into white society. This version of peace was essentially a plan of temporary ethnic cleansing and permanent cultural genocide, although the agency claimed to be doing what was best for the tribes. Now, the Army's vision of peace was significantly more complicated compared to the others. It was definitely not static. The purpose of the Army was to act as a peacekeeping force, though there were different opinions, both inside and outside the military, about what that actually meant. 
Some commanders wanted nothing more than to crush the tribe, while others wanted to keep the whites out of Indian lands, believing white settlers were the source of all problems. Others fell somewhere in that wide gap that separated those two ideas. Ultimately, the army became the agent that determined which of the four types of peace won out. Stanley Carnell, in his History of the Vietnam War, wrote that, History is an organic process, a continuity of related events, inexorable, yet not inevitable. In other words, events grow from and impact other events. It's a process that will happen no matter what. But that does not mean events had to happen the way they did. Individuals still make choices, and those choices also shape events. Yet individuals make those choices based on past events, whether experienced or learned. Carnow made a similar assertion, saying, Leaders and the people who follow them make and support choices, but within the context of their experience and aspirations. The Snake War, or the War with the Whites, as the conflict is known among the Northern Paiutes, was no exception. Both natives and whites alike made decisions based on their own experiences, aspirations, and cultural tradition. Sadly, the cumulative choices led to the near annihilation of the Northern Paiute Nation. Of all the books that have been written about the Indian Wars, the Snake War is invariably left out. There are several reasons for this. The most obvious is the timing in which the war occurred. Though conflict existed long before the start of the war, the consistent military campaigning began in 1864. This meant that those campaigns would be lost in the noise of a larger and far deadlier war on the other side of the continent, the American Civil War. But while the temporarily disunited states tore themselves apart in the East, the Northern Paiute Nation fought for its very survival in the West. The body count of the entire Snake War, roughly 1,700, is just a minuscule fraction of the 600 to 800,000 lives lost in the Civil War. Because of this, the Snake War almost never made the papers east of the Rocky Mountains. Had the war happened a few years before or after the Civil War and the initial years of the military occupation of the South, it may have been more well known. Another reason why the war is relatively unknown is because of the lack of Euro-American casualties. There was no Fetterman disaster and no Little Bighorn. The majority of deaths in the war were among the native population, and those who did die made up a large percentage of the total Paiute population. For the whites, the slaughter of scores of Indians wasn't worth much attention. But the deaths of a score of U.S. troops was a national tragedy. As sad as that is, that's the way it was. Had the casualties been more even, it's likely that it would have had a greater presence in the news of the time. One final reason is that the location of the war was so remote compared to the rest of the nation. Eastern Oregon, the majority of which is non-arable desert, held few white settlers. The mines of the Owyhees just across the state line in Idaho Territory, and the ranches and mines in Oregon's Blue Mountains, were the only regions with any significant white population. Economically, though there was gold in the Blue Mountains, the area did not have the same allure as Montana's or northern Idaho's gold deposits. The region held no lush, fertile valleys as does western Oregon. In short, there was little economic promise for whites in eastern Oregon.
Now, given the remoteness of the location, how did the conflict ever begin? The answer lies in the land itself and in the federal government's inability or unwillingness to enforce its own laws. Much of southeastern Oregon is a vast sagebrush steppe typical of the northern Great Basin in which it lies, with blocky, jagged mountains, some rising to eight or 9,000 feet in elevation, overlooking large, empty lake beds and dry, dusty plains. Of the few streams in the region, even fewer flow year-round. Resources, such as wood and game, are sparse. The greatest variety in the area is found in its climate. In summer, the pounding sun forces temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and in the winter, temperatures often fall far below zero. Blinding blizzards bury the landscape, making travel difficult even today. Along the periphery of the sagebrush desert are several mountain ranges to the north, east, and west. These mountains, namely the Blues, the Owyhees, the Cascades, and the Warners, compared to the desert, are rich in resources of wood, water, and wildlife. But the arid nature of the greater part of this region meant that there were few resources to sustain large numbers of inhabitants. The land simply could not permit large numbers of concentrated population, and as whites began to file into the region, the pressure of depleting resources pushed the tribe into direct conflict with the settlers. At the time of white settlement, the northern Paiutes numbered near 7,000 or more. Though they were spread across Oregon, Nevada, Idaho, and California, ethnographers traced the beginnings of the northern Paiute to the Mojave Desert region of the North American Southwest. The hot, dry area was the homeland of the Numic peoples. Over the course of centuries, this ethnic group expanded into much of the West, pushing up into Nevada, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming. Each tribe that emerged from the Numic spread spoke a distinct dialect of the Uto-Aztecan or Shoshonean language. Among the tribes to coalesce during this time were the Northern Paiute, Shoshone, Bannock, Ute, and Comanche. Northern Paiute tradition tells a different story, in which all life came into the world from Malheur Cave, south of present-day Burns, Oregon. Soon after, the mischievous coyote released the first man and woman upon the land, who became the first of the new Wu, as the Northern Paiutes call themselves. They typically lived a nomadic life, as food and water were scarce. The bands subsisted on roots, insects, fish, and small game. They lived in wickiups, huts made from a collection of sticks and brush. No matter the location, they usually traveled in small groups, consisting of maybe a few dozen individuals at a time. The tribe operated under a principal chief, but by the time of the Snake War, the tribe had split somewhat into two factions under Winnemucca in Nevada and Weawewa in Oregon. War chiefs led in conflicts with other tribes and later the whites, and Paulina, the brother of Weawewa, proved to be a skilled and highly feared wartime leader. According to Northern Paiute tradition, the first of the Nuwu, a mother and father, had four children, a dark-skinned boy and girl, and a light-skinned boy and girl. As the children grew, conflicts arose between the two couples, and they clashed. The parents knew the behavior could not continue and decided to separate the couples. 
The lighter couple had always been less obedient and unwilling to learn from their parents. So the father threw the two of them across a great lake. The father called to them, saying, One day you'll find your way back here to your home. The new Wu looked forward to that day and believed the reunion would be one of happiness. The initial settlers from the United States entered the Oregon country despite laws that prohibited such action. They proved that the federal government was both unable and unwilling to enforce its laws regarding the settlement of the West. The legal framework for the confiscation of native lands came with the passage of the Indian Removal Act in 1830, which authorized the federal government to remove tribes in the east to a location west of the Mississippi River. The act rendered the theft of land legal. The growing white population spawned a growing appetite for Indian land. Over time, officials replicated the Indian Removal Act through the creation of reservations to which other tribes, dispossessed of their homelands, were forced to relocate to smaller stretches of land. In many cases, the reservation lands were inferior to those taken by the whites. Treaties crafted by representatives of the Bureau of Indian Affairs served as the basic instrument for the continued takeover of land and the removal of tribes in the West. Three years after the passage of the Indian Removal Act, Congress passed the Trade and Intercourse Act, which prohibited individuals from conducting business in any territory not already organized into a state. According to the Act, no whites could legally interact with the tribes without federal approval. Unorganized territories were considered Indian country. Violators were to pay a $1,000 fine. Trapping, hunting, and grazing stock also brought significant fines. But when the covered wagons began their slow journey westward to the Oregon country in 1841, the act proved toothless as the government was incapable of enforcing it. The government lacked both the will and manpower to implement it. Some Indian commissioners tried to enforce the act where they could, but the tide of white settlers was too much. The idea of manifest destiny that white Americans were destined to fill the North American continent, trumped the law. The first contact between the Northern Paiutes of Southern Oregon and government representatives came in the early 1840s, as a large party under the command of Captain John C. Fremont passed through the area. Trudging through a forest deep in snow, Fremont and those with him came to a stop on the top of a vertical ledge overlooking an expansive valley below. While they stood in several feet of snow, the valley seemed green and inviting. The young captain, standing atop what he called Winter Ridge, which still bears the name, was gazing into the Summer Lake Valley in northern Paiute territory. With the exception of one experience, Fremont had little contact with any of the northern Paiutes besides seeing tracks and former campsites. His journal entry on Christmas Day noted that natives stole a horse the night before while the company camped near the present town site of Plush, Oregon. Three days later, on December 28, 1843, Fremont stumbled upon a small Paiute village. Startled, the Paiutes scrambled, leaving behind a woman with two children. After calming the woman down by offering her gifts, Fremont learned that the woman conversed in the Shoshonean language, and she spoke with him through interpreters about the band he had so suddenly dispersed. 
Eight or ten appeared to live together under the same little shelter, and they seemed to have no other subsistence than the roots or seeds they might have stored up, and the hares which lived in the sage, and which they were enabled to track through the snow, and are very skillful in killing, wrote Fremont. Fremont did not hold them in high regard. Clad in rabbit skins and shivering around their fires, the natives appeared pitiful to Fremont. He wrote, These may be considered among human beings the nearest approach to the mere animal creation. We have reason to believe that these had never before seen the face of a white man. Fremont did not remain long, and he continued his journey southward. The Paiutes were going to see more of the whites, and their eventual results would be catastrophic. But one notion has to be dispelled. There's a tendency to portray Native Americans as living a sort of idyllic, peaceful lifestyle. This was not the case. In fact, the northern Paiutes often engaged in warfare with their native neighbors. Tribal disputes over land and resources, possibly accelerated by the arrival of the horse, pushed the northern Paiutes and others to engage in intertribal warfare. Attacks often set off vicious warfare solely for the sake of revenge. According to anthropologist Mark Q. Sutton, the Paiutes engaged in warfare with the Klamath, Achamawi, Nez Perce, Cayuse, and Sahaptian tribes, which include the Umatilla, Warm Springs, and others. By about 1800, most of eastern Oregon was in the hands of the northern Paiutes. It is possible that the only thing that halted the northern Paiute expansion in Oregon was the arrival of firearms. Due to more extensive trade networks with the tribes to the east and white traders from settlements such as Fort Vancouver to the west, the Cayuse, Nez Perce, and others acquired guns before the Paiutes. Armed with this new technology, the Sahaptian tribes pushed back, forcing the Paiutes back to the Blue Mountains in eastern Oregon. Intertribal warfare was brutal, but the wars were usually short. Southern Oregon's Warner Valley, with Surprise Valley to the south, once belonged to the Klamaths, but the Paiutes drove them out with the help of Bannock allies. Conflicts continued, and the boundaries between the tribes became a sort of no-man's land. The Klamath chief Chiliquin wrote about some of the wars from his youth. One of the conflicts began after some Paiutes ambushed a group of Klamaths at the Klamath Marsh. Chiliquin's brother, a sub-chief, led a war party to exact revenge. They found a Paiute encampment and inflicted severe damage. The war party returned with scalps, the severed hands of Paiute warriors, and the hearts of the chiefs, which they fastened to a pole. Sadly, the violence did not end. Possibly fearing another conflict, the Klamaths avoided areas which bordered Paiute lands for two years after the fight. But when the Paiutes killed two Klamath hunters, the Klamaths formed another war party. They found the Paiutes in the Warner Mountains above the Goose Lake Valley. There, they killed a prominent Paiute chief, whom they also relieved of his scalp, hands, and heart. By the time whites began to settle in the region, the Klamaths, Modocs, and Sahaptian tribes were still the adversaries of most of the Paiutes. Northern Paiute wars with the Warm Springs tribes, a conglomerate of Toninos, Tigues, and Wascos, were especially fierce. A Warm Springs warrior named Dry Creek Billy described one horrific episode. The Paiutes and Warm Springs Indians were bad people and mean in war. They were always fighting each other. One time, the Paiutes came when only old men, women, and children were in camp. 
the attackers quickly killed each of the old men present. The women and children, however, were not fortunate enough to receive a quick death. Rather, the women became captives, destined for an uncertain fate, while the children became the victims of something far worse. Dry Creek Billy continued, saying, The Paiutes took sharpened sticks and ran them through the living children where they sat, clear up through their stomachs and out their mouths, then stuck the stakes in the ground around a fire and cooked the children like salmon. Did not eat them, but left them sticking there. In response to the vicious act, a warrior named Wasco Jim remembered, the Warm Springs warriors attacked a Paiute camp, killed all the men, enslaved the women, and killed the children in the same manner the Paiutes had done. Four of the Wascos claimed one Paiute woman, and they settled the dispute by throwing the woman to the ground and cutting off her arms and legs so each warrior could have a share. Such was the brutality of war over finite resources. Government officials later became adept at exploiting the tribal rivalries by arming the Sahaptian and Klamath warriors and commissioning them to hunt down their traditional enemies without mercy. When the Euro-American immigrants trekked across Bannock, Shoshone, and Paiute territory, some unknowingly became participants in the cycle of violence and retaliation between tribes sparring over sparse resources. Raids against wagon trains occurred, but were not common. Despite the hardships of traversing the continent and the possibility of a deadly encounter with natives, wagons continued to stream on to Oregon. The white newcomers took what they needed to survive the journey. They cut down the trees for fires, and their cattle and horses consumed and trampled the grass. Immigrants and livestock alike used precious water from the sparse, trickling streams along the route. Most importantly, the whites killed and drove off the invaluable game that the natives depended on so much for survival. After initially allowing the whites to pass through relatively unmolested, the depletion of resources took its toll, and the northern Paiutes grew more confrontational treating the immigrants more like intertribal rivals. One act of retaliation in 1854 nearly brought on a war of extermination against the natives along the immigrant trails. A small wagon train of white immigrants encountered natives about 20 miles east from the trading post of Fort Boise. Within a few moments, the men were dead and the women and children captured. A small number of additional white men in search of a missing cow happened upon the scene as the raiders rummaged through the contents of the wagons, and they attempted to chase the attackers away, but the natives did not run and instead shot one of the would-be rescuers in the head, toppling him from his horse. The other men turned and fled, with the shrieks and cries of the abandoned women and children rising behind them in the hot summer dust. By the time the incident ended, 18 of the 20 immigrants were dead. The men of the train had evidently put up a fight before they were killed, but their endeavors did not spare their families from gruesome fates. The raiders raped and tortured the women with hot metal rods from the burning wagons, scalped them, then smashed in their heads. They beat and raped a visibly pregnant woman while forcing her to watch her own children slowly roast to death over a fire. When the attackers were finished, they split the skull of the woman. Only two young boys survived including one who staggered to Fort Boise with an arrow protruding from his lung. The horrific nature of the attack, later called the Ward Massacre, shocked the Euro-American public from Oregon all the way across the Atlantic to Great Britain. 
Raids and murders along the trails were one thing, but the brutality in the Ward Massacre was different. As the story whirled through the press, the event grew in scale and conspiracy theories emerged. One paper reported that as many as a thousand armed natives were seen roaming in the vicinity of Fort Boise near the time of the massacre. A Little Rock, Arkansas editor blamed the Hudson's Bay Company for the tragedy, stating that the company was selling firearms to the natives, which the natives then used against American immigrants. But whatever the circumstances, the papers exhibited outrage toward the perpetrators. It is altogether desirable that all the measures taken in this matter should be as efficient as possible, the editor of Ohio's The Perrysburg Journal remarked. There should be an everlasting treaty made with those Snake Indians, if it be possible. Otherwise, such a chastisement should be inflicted upon them as will keep their remembrance fresh. An editor in Olympia, Washington Territory wrote that, at present, nothing less than a war of extermination is spoken of here. The anger and paranoia surrounding the event partially stemmed from another bloody act. Seven years before the Ward Massacre, Cayuse men attacked Marcus and Narcissa Whitman's Wai'ilatpu mission in present-day Washington, then a part of the Oregon country. The Cayuse killed both of the Whitmans, as well as a few others. Illustrated representations portrayed the event as an act of treachery by the Cayuse, with a warrior tomahawking the unaware Marcus Whitman from behind. The killing of Narcissa Whitman was proof of the natives' barbarity, and in the aftermath of that attack, whites made war upon the Cayuse. While most of the fighting in the Cayuse War ended by about 1850, periodic outbursts still occurred in the region until 1855. Henry Spaulding, an associate of the Whitmans, made an unsubstantiated claim that the same natives who attacked the Whitmans were the same who attacked the Ward Party. He made a completely unsubstantiated and absurd claim that Catholic missionaries were in part responsible for the Ward Massacre. Though there was no real connection between the events, the attack at Wailapu and the ensuing violence were still fresh in the minds of white Americans. Given the circumstances, it's no surprise that the public reacted with such vitriol in 1854. Yet they all forgot that had the immigrants never been on native land, consuming precious resources and disrupting the northern Paiute way of life, the event never would have happened. The Ward Massacre was ultimately the product of a government that could not enforce its own laws or control its citizens. The editor of the Oregon City newspaper, Oregon Spectator, lambasted the troops stationed at Fort Vancouver for not doing anything to make the trail safe for immigrants. The editor wrote that it was time for the citizens to confront the issue themselves. The proposed solution was nothing short of genocide. It read, We think it absolutely necessary that men enough should go from the Willamette Valley to literally exterminate that race. The author knew exactly what that implied and was adamant that it should be done. Nothing that the whites can do towards scalping the savages can be too cruel. Not even their women and children should be spared to grow up and thus reenact recent outrages. The wrath of the whites knew no boundaries. The 34-year-old acting governor of Oregon, George L. Curry, sensed the public mood and called for an increase in the number of territorial militia units in a proclamation on September 18, 1854. Curry was more moderate in his approach than the newspapers, however. The militia units were to be used to patrol the immigrant trail from Fort Boise to the Willamette Valley. 
Oregon militia units already patrolled the southern route, or the Applegate Trail, which had been the target of repeated attacks from the Modocs near Tule Lake in California and Tolowas in the Rogue Valley of southwest Oregon. The militia not only patrolled the trail, the volunteers aggressively confronted any natives found near those paths and attacked those whom they believed were a threat to travel. This included northern Paiutes. It appears that Curry intended to use the militia up north in the same way they were used in the south, but the army stifled this plan before it ever came to fruition. The War Department refused to provide armaments and supplies for the additional state militia. An embarrassed Curry had to rescind his proclamation. The editor of the Oregon Spectator was furious. After voicing frustration with Curry, the author then expressed his deep frustration with the federal government. Why does the government thus turn their backs on the welfare of Oregon as to deprive us of ammunition even for the prosecution of this just war? Turning his indignation upon the troops of Fort Vancouver, he wrote, What is Fort Vancouver? A hospital where U.S. soldiers are taken in and cared for after they have met with the serious losses consequent upon too little restraint upon their virtuous passions? It's of no use to Oregon or Washington territories if, in case of emergency like this, we cannot receive the least aid when we want it to avenge the lives of innocent women and children. However, in that same printing of The Spectator was Curry's countermanding order, which states another reason he canceled his militia request. He had received word that an army force was already taking the field to combat raids on wagon trains. It is entirely possible that the editor of The Spectator was only dissatisfied because the upcoming fighting would not be done on the Oregonians' terms, but rather by an army that would not bend to the public's genocidal preference. When troops from Fort Dalles set out to punish the perpetrators of the massacre, they went along with Nathan Olney, a federal Indian agent. The group, under the command of Brevet Major Granville Haller, met with 200 natives at Fort Boise in July of 1855. General John E. Wool reported the event in his 1855 report to Jefferson Davis, then the Secretary of War. The natives who sat in this meeting accused the Boise Snakes, a band composed of Shoshones and Paiutes, who they referred to as White Knives, of the atrocity from the previous year. While in the council, Wool wrote, four of the raiders of the ward party were identified. Wool never recorded how they were able to identify the raiders, and whether those four actually did commit the massacre or whether they were merely scapegoats will never be known. After a hasty trial before several officers, three of them were hanged, and the fourth was shot dead attempting to escape the noose. Perhaps it's one more example of how much the ward massacre shocked the whites that even General Wool, who often publicly voiced his sympathies for the natives in their conflicts against the whites, praised Haller for his efforts and the outcome. The quest to punish those who committed the massacre continued, and the actions of some of the soldiers may have made the region more volatile. Haller sent troops into Camas Prairie in what is now central Idaho, hoping to chance upon any natives who may have played a part in the atrocity. Johnny Grant, a mountaineer and rancher, somewhat reluctantly accompanied the soldiers on their hunt, acting as an interpreter and guide. He recalled the fiasco with disgust in his memoirs, detailing the behavior of the troops towards the natives they encountered, which was invariably bad. They eventually encountered a native encampment, and Grant dressed several soldiers in his own clothes 
so as to allay the suspicion of those in the camp. The two groups sat in a circle and discussed their purpose, and the natives revealed that three of the perpetrators of the ward massacre were in that very camp. When the three were brought forward, one of the officers with Grant stood and revealed a double-barreled shotgun, at which moment several of the natives bolted. The soldiers opened fire and hit one of the accused murderers, while Grant hurriedly caught another. A sergeant gunned down two natives who were also attempting to flee. The soldiers then departed, taking with them the man Grant caught. The next day, the troops lynched the prisoner, but as the man did not die fast enough for their liking, one soldier grabbed the native's legs and pulled down until the man strangled to death. That is the way to do it, the soldier said. Then they cut down the lifeless corpse and threw it on the ground at the foot of the tree. Grant took mental note of the scene, intending to report the appalling incident to Haller upon their return. As far as he was concerned, he was through with the matter, though he did fear the repercussions it would have in the region. The whites ought not to be surprised at the cruelty of Indians towards them after such examples, he wrote. The lynching marked the end of the Army's involvement in the aftermath of the Ward Massacre. There was no public outcry against the killing of the natives, no newspaper editor to complain and rant about the shameful acts. It brings up the question of how many other acts of violence against Indians passed without scant notice or no notice at all. The public did not care about dead natives, only about dead whites. It was the reality the Northern Paiutes and other tribes faced. They were without friends, without advocates. Soon, the Yakima War and the Rogue River Wars stole the attention of the still angry public away from the events of 1854. Still, some refused to forget the incident. One man in particular keenly remembered the massacre. At the close of 1854, Charles S. Drew, the quartermaster general of the Oregon militia, penned a report which stated in part, the treacherous conduct of the Indian has at all times and on all occasions since the organization of the first American settlements in this territory been such as is calculated to deprive them of the sympathy of every true man having the cause of humanity at heart and to convince the most peaceable of the necessity of their subjugation. Citing American history since the days of the Mayflower, Drew wrote his belief that the natives had continually demonstrated their untrustworthiness. As the natives could not be trusted, it was time to destroy them. The most humane cannot but acknowledge that it is time for vigorous action, and that sickly sentimentality should cease. Lo, the poor Indian is the exclamation of our modern philanthropists and lovesick novel writers. Lo, the defenseless men, women, and children who have fallen victims and suffered even more than death itself at their hands is the immediate response of the surviving witnesses of the inhuman butcheries perpetrated by this God-accursed race. Drew concluded his report with a call for war without restraint. The prosperity of the country requires that a course of policy be adopted by the government that will at once teach the Indians to feel the power of Americans and to dread their punishment. The prosperity of the country requires that a course of policy be adopted by the government that will at once teach the Indians to feel the power of Americans and to dread their punishment. The tactics of armies are but shackles and fetters in the prosecution of an Indian war. Fire must be fought with fire. It would not be long before Drew took part in the opening of the war he prophesied. <laughs>